Welcome to the Westside Marble Podcast. Today's guest is Gary Sanger. Gary, thank you so much for coming in to talk with us. So we'll get straight into this. And my first question, like it is for everyone else, is how did you end up at Westside Barbell and at what time did you get here at? Okay. Um, first of all, humbled and, and honored to be here. Um, the, the, the way that I got here, I could maybe tell a medium length story if you want Take more all, detail. Take all the time you want. Well, um, I started as a lifter at Purdue. Um, Purdue actually, we established the Purdue Powerlifting Club in 1970. Okay. And before that, there was no Purdue club. We lifted against places like Michigan State, things like that. Um, I ended up uh, getting a PhD at Purdue. Eventually, there's some back and forth that's in Louis's book that we yeah. might get to, but it took a little uh, back and forth. But I arrived here in, in um, Columbus fall of 19, uh, 1970, 1977. Okay. Decades are getting blurry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're good. 77. Yeah. For my first quarter, Ohio State was on the quarter system, which is an academic thing. No worries. Uh, I went, I didn't know anything about Columbus. So Purdue had a nice facility. In fact, they let our club design and build a space in the rec center for powerlifting at, oh, wow. at Purdue. So yeah. we had read magazines. Our only knowledge was basically what we read in, in magazines. Uh, according to Louis's book, sort of the way he started out, we read about the West Coast. Um, Culver City guys. Culver City guys and all that. So we, we designed, we, we had three squat racks. We had three three solid benches, um, and we were, you know, decent, decent little college team. So I come to Columbus. I didn't really know where to go. Mm -hmm. uh, went to the Ohio State gym. Duh. I'm on the faculty. Um, I think I got in there for free. And so I just started training um, by myself and uh, didn't know anybody. So um, the reason I got to Louise is sitting right off camera here. Uh, Jimmy Sicer saw me. Uh, training in there and um, I had just won the collegiate nationals the year before that and um, so he obviously saw potential and talked Lou and got an invite and what, what was that like after you got the invite just so your first time walking into what would be West Side Barbell well first of all when I when Jim saw me again so uh, the, the next he said First, he, he said, you, sh you shouldn't be in here. You need to go train with Louis Simmons. Yeah. And I said, holy shit. I know who that guy is. <laughs> yeah. I knew who he was. Yeah. Because Central Indiana Weightlifting Club was Ronnie Hale and his bunch in Indiana. And Purdue guys would go to their meets. And <clears throat> Louis was at one of those meets. And I'm going to guess 72, 73 okay. would be a, a good good year to pick. Um I was a 181. I, he was a 181. And I see this guy with, he had long hair back then. Yeah. He had the Fu Manchu, but he also was walking around in this big white, like a doctor's coat or something. <laughs> like, it's a strange looking guy. Yeah. <laughs> I asked Ronnie Hale, I said, who the heck is that? He says, oh, that's Louis Simmons. He's, Super strong guy. He's a little bit weird, but <laughs> and boy was he! And I'll never forget this. I mean, I was maybe squatting five, five ten, something like that. And everybody in 
that weight class is done. Yeah. And Louie opened with a 6'10", and he goes down, comes up strong, and falls back. Second attempt, same weight, comes up strong, falls back. Same thing, bombed out with 6'10". And it turned out later at the meet, we're all talking to people. He was experimenting with something back then called an earth shoe. I don't know if anybody of this generation has any clue what that is. It was some hippie kind of shoe where the forefront, four... Kind of like where the toes are? The front of the shoe is higher than the... It was a a reverse heel. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, that makes... We all squatted in Chuck Taylor's flat for squats. Uh, I don't know what people do now, but the idea was, obviously, Louie was always thinking about, how can I get more? How can I do more? And so... All right, more and more and more on the big muscles in the back of your body, less, less, less on the weaker quads. Mm-hmm. And But the problem is he was just trying them out at that meet. He didn't practice. <laughs> <laughs> Balance problem. Yeah. But anyway, so, yeah, I definitely knew, I definitely knew who Louie was. And I was, I said, wow. I mean, I know that guy. And then I saw totals yeah. after that. So I said, sure. Be just really happy to go see what that's like. And where was the gym at that time? Was it at his house? Yeah, 590 Larkham. I'll I'll never forget that address as long as I live. And um, I remember driving up. You could park in the front. My first time there, I parked in the front. After that, we all parked in the alley Mm -hmm. in the back. But Lou is sitting on the front porch with Doris, and they're rocking chairs waiting for me. And I walked up, and he had bulked up even more than, than when I had seen him. Yeah been five years, I guess, since that, that first encounter. And um, I walked up and introduced myself. He rattled off my collegiate national lifts. Boom, you, you squatted this, you deadlifted this, you benched this. <laughs> yes, sir, I did. Yeah. <laughs> he knew exactly what I, and look, we didn't have any internet back then. Yeah. This was all these little, once a month, you get a powerlifting USA or a, some kind of publication, it was all paper. But no, he, he knew my lifts. Um, it was a Sunday, so that's bench day. Yeah. And um, I had gone because I was always having, at that time, trouble making weight. So I got in the habit of training in a plastic wrestling suit. And he goes, you know, what the hell are you doing <laughs> with that thing on? <laughs> and uh, he convinced me that probably wasn't helping very much. Okay. So I I, go, I always listen to him. It was apparent to me. I mean, yeah. I want to listen to somebody that's stronger than me. For sure. And the first day you went in, was it just you and him? Or is there other people training there? There were some others there. Now, we're going to get a little fuzzy. But, okay. no, obviously Jimmy was there um, in the book. That's all to my recollection. Um, not sure the exact people on that day. But there was a crowd. Yeah. Probably Tom Pellucci. Probably Doug Heath. Um, Bill Whitaker, for sure. Because yeah. he lived right, right in the backyard there. And did you realize when you went there after the first week that it was something different than you've ever experienced training in there? Oh, like the first 10 minutes. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, it, it was a garage. It was, yeah. But it was great. It was like, oh, we had this tremendous setup at Purdue, but we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. <laughs> we were just uh, flailing in the wind pretty much. Read the magazine. Okay, it says do three sets of this. And you go do, do it. Do this, do that. And, you know, some of us made more progress than others, but no, just, just immediately, um, 
seeing the kind of setups that he had. Now, Sunday was just pretty much back then a straight bench day. Yeah. But still um, the emphasis on the, I guess he'd call them now special exercises. We'd call it assistance work. Um, you know, a lot of tricep work, a lot of, uh, you know, I had never done uh, benching off of pins at different levels before that. So immediately saw a lot of things that were was different advanced from what, what we were doing the basic progressive train for a meet 12 weeks. Yeah. And you build up each week and you cut your reps down the old, you know, dinosaur method of progressive resistance. And what equipment was in the gym then? At Louis? Yeah. Well, obviously the power rack that he built himself. Well, had uh, that got the, was that two inch hole spacing or had that got the inch hole spacing? That was then? two inch hole spacing, spacing. back okay. then. Um, let's see, we had a, a rack and you benched out of that rack, you squatted out of that rack, and you deadlifted that in that rack. That was, yeah, that was it. And then um, we put, well, of course, the the main thing that was really now this wasn't on bench day but the reverse hyper i'd obviously never seen that before and that's yeah. um you know when i left to go to louisiana and find a new gym to train there that's the first thing i put in there um nail some two by tens together get the milk crate set it up exactly the way it was <laughs> at uh at louis yeah and then the box squat obviously um I'd read about that a little bit, but at Purdue we weren't 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 using that. So. so, you got into the gym. You're kind of mingling in with the group. Mm -hmm. Did you start? Um, did you understand the culture aspect was different in the way everyone had a not a purpose, but everyone kind of fulfilled a role within the gym? Yeah, over time, it's it's, it's sort of people took their sort of a role in a play almost yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, um, at, at Purdue it was we were all roughly the same age roughly doing the same thing at school um, and more homogeneous bunch I guess you'd say okay whereas at, at Louis it was all over the map it was yeah. um, lots of different people from different backgrounds and um, you know Heath was a, a lunatic. <laughs> uh, Pellucci would say, look, psychiatrists are crazier than normal people. <laughs> he did say that yeah. with an honest face. Uh, no, it was a bunch of characters. Um, Louis credited you with a lot of the analysis of what went on. Um, and from talking with him, everyone had a purpose to him and his scheme of things. Sure. But he did credit with you that he would sit down with you and analyze. And that was a huge part of reflecting back on training. Uh, do you remember those moments where you sit after training and what did you guys talk about and look at? Yeah, I do. Um, especially Sundays. Um, Sunday, we'd bench at 11 and typically hang out at Louis's house. Doris was a saint. I mean, yeah. she had <laughs> more guests than uh, I've got more stories about that later, but but uh, no, we'd hang out in in, in uh, Louis's living room, especially on Sundays after after bench day. Not only, but main, yeah. no, we'd sit. Sometimes he'd like to watch uh, wrestling, and he even had a 
a mask, the Avenger mask he'd put on <laughs> and cut up. <laughs> he was a big wrestling fan. fan. Yeah. And I've got another wrestling story later that it should actually compliment one of Jim's uh, recollections from your, his podcast. Yeah. But no, we'd sit and talk a lot. I mean, really. And he was the, the genius. He was the innovator. But I was maybe a good sounding board and a fairly smart guy that could sort of reflect and maybe suggest this or that. I'd really like to think I contributed to the belt squat. Um, I remember we were sitting one day and Louie had all these old books, which I'm probably still yep. up here. And we're looking, we saw this thing with Paul Anderson on a giant platform with a, a hole cut through it and chains and he's squatting an elephant. You know, okay. He was known for doing lots of things. Like yeah. Money in Vegas, I think, and safes. And he was squatting an elephant. But he had this huge harness on. I said, Louie, we both look at the way the weight's distributed. Like when we squat, you've got a fulcrum. I mean, if you're off by a tiny little bit, you're, you're, either, you're got a bad speed. If you even survive the squat, yeah. you know? And so, but, and you're not going to get full muscle use of any muscle group. Your, your weakest group in a full squat is your limit. So what if you could, you know, develop each group independently and look at, look at Anderson. If we could have the weight sort of distributed the way he did, who knows? We'd probably lift 2,000 pounds. And <clears throat> we thought about it. And to be honest, there, it went through iterations. So <laughs> the, the, the closest thing we could think of to the way his harness looked, believe it or not, was an army backpack. And so... What, what led to belt squat eventually started out, we put, you know, the support pins in the rack, put the two by tens to stand on and then support yourself. And we put as much weight in a backpack as we could put. Okay. And then free, you know, you got the rack there in case you lose <laughs> your balance, right? Yeah. Which we did. <laughs> and we started squatting with the backpack. And that was okay. But the problem is you couldn't get enough weight in them. I mean, it was just... That was too easy. Yeah. Um, it wasn't an elephant. We couldn't get an <laughs> elephant in the backpack. So, <laughs> so the next thing was the belt sort of put the, uh, I remember, I think it was, I think it was Kevin Aikens uh, volunteered up his power belt. His, he had one of those wide Olympic belts and we put pipe fasteners on, on the back of it and a, a hose through the pipe fasteners and then a chain through the hose wear the belt and again stand on those boards and then hook the what is essentially today's belt squat yeah so hook the chain through a certain amount of weights pull the milk crate out do your your belt squats and um that worked pretty well i mean obviously that is yeah. what it is today in some some form or function and um with i know with louis new machine it's so much more efficient but i mean back then if you could squat seven it wouldn't be that easy to to do a good set with 400 pounds in that method because it starts to swing on you. Oh yeah, you're up on a, on these planks. Um, but the wildest it ever got, and it didn't last long. Was again trying to mimic Anderson was <laughs> the belt squat between your legs, the pack on your back, and then a bar. Not a whole lot of weight, but a bar <laughs> on your back. We actually did that a couple of times and it was 
a train wreck. <laughs> so what, what all came out of that was a lot of experimentation, a lot of bouncing things back and forth, um, and ended up, we thought the, the belt squat was the best way to isolate um, lower body without stressing out the back or, or having the fulcrum effect. Well, it, it, it evolved into something hugely crucial to our everyday training. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm proud to say I was a little bit a part of that, but we talked about it for hours. Was there any part of you ever hesitant of the experimentation? Not really. No, I was pretty much, I don't know what people think of academics. Uh, they're, they're stereotyped a lot, I know. But uh, no, I was with Louie, I would try just about anything. Yeah. And did you guys record what worked and what didn't work and evolve that way? It was pretty easy to figure that out. out. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, yeah. We just, okay. We're not going to do the pack and the belt and the yeah. bar anymore. Um, going through uh, the the data you sent over and the Powerlifting USA articles, and you touched on it mm -hmm. that uh, muscular development and Powerlifting USA were hugely Im influential and important to yes. uh, distribute information. Right. Um, I did notice that there seemed to be a strong connection with Westside and Blacks mm -hmm. in meets. And I wonder if you could talk about that and when did it go from uh, lifting with Blacks to lifting as Westside Barbell? Was Westside even Westside then? No, actually, um, based on the timing, again, I, I arrived, maybe to digress a bit here, but I came in the fall of 77. Um, I was what's called ABD. I was all but dissertation in my PhD okay. work at Purdue. So that means I had passed my field exams, I'd passed all my courses, and I was working on a dissertation, which is a research project. Hadn't quite finished it, but Ohio State made me the offer to come over, so I took it. Um, I stayed a year, so 77 to 78. Uh, hadn't finished, and so Purdue was was encouraging me to actually go back and make sure I finished. Mm -hmm. It would be a, a, a big loss not to, to finish after that much time. So I had to take a break and went back from 78 to 79 to Purdue, uh, finished, and then came back and started again in fall of 79. And then, so um, that was a, a gap. Yep. I actually saw Louie in between there because, he, again, he had come to Indiana for some a meet or two in the interim. So um, now I forget the original question. Oh, so, as the connection with Blacks. Oh, yeah. And blacks. then, yeah. So they have the timetable. So we started seeing Blacks guys at meets, obviously, just like we saw the 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 West Virginia guys at, at meets got to know people. Yeah. John Black was a pretty much an evangelist. Um, I think he, I think he might've been a, some sort of minister. I don't know, but he was a very big promoter, yeah. huge promoter. And Louie, on the other hand, I know his, his, one of his theories was if, if we lift as a team and we go out of town, they're going to judge us. They're going to want their hometown team to win. And yeah. we're, we're going to be at a disadvantage. Whereas I think if we're individuals, we might get a little bit more slack because we're not competing for that team trophy. So, yeah. and that made sense. I mean, and I think we saw it happen actually. So, um, but Black was just relentless. I mean, he just wanted to promote, and he had a lot of strong guys up there. Um, and he, re I asked Lou. And he said, Lou, I mean, do you mind if if you don't want to have a team? Do you mind if I lift for John? And he said, No, go ahead. Yeah. 
and then some of the other guys did too, and eventually Louie did, not too long. Uh, but then again, my time was cut short. A um, harsh fact of academe is if you don't publish enough, you don't get tenure. Yeah. Um, I did not get tenure at Ohio State, so I had to be on the job market and, and ended up at LSU. But that's why I left in 85. Yeah. It was, uh, uh, just re, you know, that's it. That's your job. Got to go. But which was 84 was a hell of a year for you in powerlifting. 84 was a good year. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, well, West Side had not been, I think he established it not too long after I'd left. Yeah. What was it? Was it just, I know a lot of people said Louie on the Hill. There was different names of it, but did you guys have a name for it? We didn't at no. that time. There was just no, no thinking about it that I that I remember. Yeah. Subject to the frailties of my memory. <laughs> do you um, do you remember any? Did you guys have any rivals at powerlifting meets back then, or people that you would go back and forth against? Um, since well, once we if we were. Uh, once we hooked up with John Black, it was again the West Virginia guys. Was that Vince's? Um, I don't remember the name yeah. of the gym, but Roger Estep and okay, and those you know Chucky Dunbar, Luke Imes. Um, I remember Luke Imes one time. He was a character. He would he would pretend he was Yosemite Sam when he'd be walking <laughs> up to the deadlift. He would, and he kind of looked like Yosemite yeah. Sam, but. In the back room one day, he said, I've got the highest deadlift in powerlifting. And everybody looked at him. And Luke says, look at where my hands are. Look how far off the floor they are. i got the <laughs> highest deadlift in powerlifting. Yeah. But Roger and those guys were rivals, friendly rivals. Yeah. We all got, you know, back then, we all got along fairly well. Um, those are the, the, the group I remember the most. Um, what was your... Uh most enjoyable aspect of going to powerlifting meets with the group from here to meets yeah oh just the camaraderie and and it was um just the whole aspect of it i mean i know i know a lot of us i mean louie liked the gym a lot better than he liked meets yeah i'm pretty sure he's probably told people that um meets can be great they can be tragic so it's it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of mental pressure at meets. Uh, it's a matter of how you handle that. Um, the way I tried to handle it was um, just think about how bad you felt that time you bombed or yeah. that time you came in second by body weight where somebody can out deadlift, deadlift you. So my motivation was just, I don't want to feel like that yeah. after this meet. So. Um, but no, the group was great. Everybody supported everybody. Um, just a bunch of fun to go. And then, you know, after a while, you really get to know some of the other teams well, too. Yeah. It uh, Was that your guys' method of um, comparing? So to see if training was going well, you'd assess the meet results and then go back to the drawing board? Or Yeah, quite a bit. Um, it would, all right. Yeah, we all kept notebooks. Yeah. I still have some of my notebooks really? back in the in the closet. Uh, yeah, we took copious notes of every everything we did, every set, every day, every workout. Um, and so to go back and say, here's what we planned, what happened? Yeah. You know, the biggest thing we learned, I mean, the, the overall big picture is Louie figured out 
and it was toward the end of my time, so I didn't really get to benefit from it as much as I could have. But he says, you know, every single one of us was stronger three weeks before this meet. And we overtrained and under, you know, his theory now, not enough volume, too much heavy, yeah. and, and you actually lose conditioning. So um, that, that was a big lesson. And just as I was leaving, we had just started the percents. Okay. Um, to get context here, uh, back in those days, it was, uh, you know, watching some of these other podcasts with Hoff and people like that. I'd like to say we were the Wright brothers and, and these guys are flying a space shuttle. <laughs> um, but we didn't have the equipment. We didn't have all Louis new stuff that he had figured out after yeah. I left. Again, I left in 80, 85. So at the very beginning. What was uh, Lou like as a, a training partner and a coach? Great. I mean, we had, you know, he had different relationships with different people. Yeah. And we had nothing but mutual respect. And uh, I can't remember in over the eight-year span. I was gone and back. But yeah. I can't remember a harsh word. I can't remember an argument. Um, just we we clicked. We got along. We were... Um, a lot of people like to compare our differences. I'm a PhD in finance and he's yeah. not. Yeah. <laughs> well, Louis is a double PhD in strength training. Um, he's got more knowledge in that area than anybody with letters after their name. Yeah. A hundred percent. So we were very similar. And I guess in that case, sometimes opposites work out, yeah. but uh, no, there was none of this, not, not a bunch of needling or, or we both knew if you missed a lift, you were the you felt the worst about that yeah. of anybody in the room. So we didn't need we some of the podcasts I watched in the later years. There was more acrimony. There yeah. was more um, in your face. Uh, we didn't do that. We didn't need it. Yeah. Well, you guys seem to assess more and try to figure out the why behind of the missing. We tried as best we could. Okay. Um, and it worked. I mean, we got a lot stronger over those years. Uh, do you have any, uh, I'd imagine you have a lot, but memorable moments with Lou and with the group that you could share with us? Oh, how much time do you have? As, as much as you want. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, I thought sure you'd ask me about Matt Dimmel. Um, he's on here as the, oh, okay. I'll, I'll leave that then. But, um, well, Jimmy discovered me. I discovered Dimmel. Now, some people might put it the other way, <laughs> right? Dimmel. No, he became that guy. Yeah. But when I met him, he was a little kid, underage, in a nightclub. <laughs> um, my wife and I like to go to nightclubs. I used to be in a rock band in high school. Oh, really? And um, frustrated musician. So. Oh, yeah. um, if we can go there right now with Matt. Yeah, let's go, let's uh, go so for it. I think it was called Dixie Electric Company back in the day in Columbus. And my wife and I were regulars there. And this big pudgy kid comes up to me one night and he figures out I'm a lifter and he starts asking me questions. And, uh, well, where do you train? What do you do? And he, he says, uh, I do dumbbell curls with 60 pound dumbbells till my arms get black and blue. I said, well, that's just stupid. <laughs> he, said, he literally, I remember this like yesterday. Yeah. And it was in 77 or 78. Um, 
And he just kept bugging me at these, he'd see me and see me and bug me and bug me. I go to Lou, pretty much the way Jim came to Lou with me, yeah. except this is a whole different deal. <laughs> I said, you might think I'm crazy, but this is like a, a big farm boy that looks like he could be massively strong. I just said, he's a little bit crazy. Uh, what do you think? And so obviously, Louis Louis agreed to bring him in, and you know the rest of that. Yeah, um, but it turned out there's like a he lot was... of other bar stories, but I don't know how many you want to hear. Oh, that that I I think the more we learn about Matt, the better, because with the uh, the group with uh, Marcus, Chuck, Dom, and Tom, they um, elaborated on the nicer side of Matt. I think everyone trends towards the crazy side, mm-hmm. but that um, he really had a a good side to him. He did. And, and yeah. I don't think a lot of people uh, talk about that. No, he had, he had a very good side to him. He was a, um, again, I think Louis and I were both kind of father figures to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louis's four years older than I was, but we're both a lot older than Matt. Yeah. And I was the one that found him. So to an extent, he would take our advice and then, they, then he would uh, deviate. He would <laughs> sort of not listen like a little kid would do. Yeah. And uh, as other podcasts mentioned, drinking didn't help. Yeah. Um, he, you know, up to the time I had left, he was not in any real trouble, um, mainly just bar fights. And, um, you know, one night in one of these clubs, some guy comes up and gets in between me and Matt and starts giving me grief over something. I didn't even know what he's talking about. Yeah. And before I could do anything, Matt just backhanded him with his fist, knocked him out cold. <laughs> Police come and get him. Yeah. Matt throws me his wallet and says, come bail me out, uh, which I did uh, more, than, more than once. Yeah. But he didn't start it. And I remember my wife, you know, she was my age and trying to counsel Matt. She said, Matt, why do you get in all these fights? He says, I don't start them. They just yeah. seem to find me. <laughs> then we're walking out of the nightclub, and one of the guys at the door starts giving Matt a bunch of grief. And he looks at my wife and goes, see? <laughs> he just, anyway, but no, he, he had a heart of gold. He, he was, who knows? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mm-hmm. might be a, a way to put it. Um, one night we're riding home. This is... This is a different thing altogether, but he had this big old rusty, I think it was a Plymouth. And we're riding down these streets that are sort of like Larkham where there's cars parked on both <laughs> sides. And he gets a flat tire in the front, pulls over into one of the empty spaces. He gets out and goes to the trunk. And I get out and he gets the jack and, and the jack handle out. I said, Matt, you don't have a spare. He goes, I know. He goes walking <laughs> up the street finds the car with the same tire he had he jack this is three in the morning jacks the car up takes their wheel off goes to his car puts it on his goes back to their car and puts his flat tire on their car <laughs> honest to god yeah. truth um he was a character he um from louis stories he seemed not had his own internal justice system that made sense to him not to many others, sure. but if he liked you or you're a part of the group in the club, that he was the best guy ever. And he would do, and he was a phenomenally strong oh, yeah. person that he had a hard time dealing with being so strong. I agreed with that. Yeah. Um, 
Again, I think the in the end, I heard you know it was just sad. It was yeah. his own worst enemy. There's so much potential and, and so much niceness, um, but then the other side that just he couldn't couldn't overcome that apparently. Um, what was it like training with Tom Pellucci? Tom was a funny guy too. I mean, I, as I said, he would say our psychologists are crazier than you yeah. normal people. Brutally strong guy. I mean, he, yeah. he didn't look muscular, but he was a he's a big guy, tremendous deadlift. Um, was always cracking jokes. Just um, he wasn't at every workout. I mean, some of these guys were a little more regular than others. But, yeah, um, everybody had some conflicts, but the, nobody wanted to miss workouts. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, Tom was a great guy to lift with. Was supportive. Lighthearted. Um, what was the um, when you guys were training? What was that atmosphere like? Was it more jovial or was it down to business? And then afterwards, you would uh, assess and talk. It'd be a little bit of joviality going in the door, and then uh, warm ups. But then once the weight started to, to go on the bar, it was pretty pretty just serious. Yeah. Um, playing ACDC or Iron Maiden or. Uh, we had an eight track, I think it was, yeah. up in the up in the corner, and everybody, you know, it, Louie and I were the same when we lifted. We were quiet. Yeah, we were meditative. We we're both sitting there before a lift. People might have been yelling and screaming. We didn't hear it. Other people wanted a lot of stimulation before they lifted. Yeah, I, we neither one of us would yell or scream or do anything. Just get under the weight and try to lift it. And, and others like Matt, he wanted a, he wanted a lot of yelling and screaming and slap in the face, smash his head on the bar. Did uh, you guys realize back then the difference between introverts and extroverts? Was this something that you were uh, that you knew was a thing, or did you start figuring this out with having all the different personalities in the gym? Well, I pretty much knew. Again, I was on a team at Purdue yeah. before this, and uh, that was all. Um, it was the same way there. Some people had to get really riled up and and uh, slapped around or yelled at to, to lift, and others just do it. Yeah. So yeah, that that was a a big difference among among the group. Heath was an, a maniac. Yeah. He was just. Um, I saw him one time before meet. He's in the back room. He's got. Again, we had these suits and. You know, how much did a suit help back then? Maybe 20 pounds, I don't know. Uh, made you feel more stable and more, yep. more comfortable. But he had a pair of pliers and a screwdriver trying <laughs> to get this suit on. I said, Doug, you're doing, your, you're doing yourself more harm than good with this. <laughs> it's like, but um, no, he was, he was bat nuts crazy. Yeah. He would just, but a hell of a lifter, obviously. Yeah. World record holder. Um, it's amazing to look back at your guys's crew to see the different personalities but how um to have some people on just say hugely academic level and mm -hmm. then on the batch of crazy level right but how everyone intertwined to create this complex culture that no one knew would evolve into what it did yeah, but kind of it really did set the stepping stones for the next generation in the mid '80s mm -hmm. when they came in because that's when culture, from what I can see, 
really hit its peak of West Side or nothing. Sure. Um, but you guys were there right before it was West Side. Yep. And culminated into what we believe West Side is now. Sure. Um, and that's what I've I never got to ask Lou, but with you guys, it kind of seems that he took all the information and you need some crazy, you don't need too crazy. Because sure. he said average people give you average results. But no one was average at all. No. And that, that was a big thing throughout each each um, generation of Lifter, which I think all attributes back to your guys' group, which is a huge thing. And that's why we're doing these podcasts is for right. people to understand that um, Westside wasn't just an overnight success. It Right when strength and conditioning became an occupation was around 76, I think, mm-hmm. is when a, a full-time strength coach was. You guys were right there developing a method of training when no one was even really thinking about that. Right. Um, the five Manny Larkham, for anyone who is part of West Side, is kind of the holy grail. Mm-hmm. And there's rumors and everything of what happened. But I did read in one of your emails, and I'm not sure if there's truth to this, but plyometrics on the staircase up oh, and yeah. down. Is that tr- is there any of the house yeah, stories again, that you can doors, share? Doors should have sainthood, uh, all the things that <laughs> went on there. Um, yeah, once we heard about plyometrics, uh, we didn't have any fancy stools to jump up on. We did some jumping up on the pickup truck beds in the back, and yeah. that wasn't high enough. And so here we go. Louie goes to the back door, and I think he had five concrete steps up to the back door that led right to the kitchen. <laughs> so... We prop the doors open, leap from the bottom up into the kitchen. And so, I mean, Doris is upstairs here and this thump, thump, <laughs> comes down. Lewis, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> yeah, we would literally jump up the back steps into the kitchen for plyometrics. So plyometrics in the house was possibly a, a one-day event? I believe since Jim doesn't remember it, I think it was a day he wasn't there and uh, Doris put the kibosh on <laughs> you got to find some better way to do this. Uh, what other aspects um, that you brought in for a day or for a week and that quickly made its, its exit that it wasn't carrying over the time? Oh, we tried, uh, tried so many things. Um, the one thing I didn't, I really hated was the, um, I guess it was, is it the isotonic machine? Oh, isokinetic? Isokinetic machine. Yes. I hated that thing. I hated it. Because no matter how hard you pushed on it, it wouldn't go any faster. Yeah. And I, I guess there was some theory. I don't, I don't think we used that over m- much more than maybe a, a few months time. And it, it just didn't seem to contribute much i I hated that thing (laughs) you're used to being a push hard and get some momentum yeah and feel no you could it will go this fast no matter what What? you do were you a more of an explosive lifter i would like to think so i gotcha um (laughs) and you were you ever there when it was in the basement of larkham nope i I was not there that early and i guess that would have been just me either jim or bill and doug possibly um, um, and I'm not sure how long it was in the garage when I got there, but that, that's that's where I started. Um, were you around when Tom deadlifted 800? Yes. What was yeah. um, what led up to that? Because that's a pretty pivotal point for the club. 
He was the first 800-pound deadlifter. Yeah, I think he might have done that at the YMCA Nationals or possibly the Junior Nationals. Um, yeah, that, that was a huge lift. You know, there weren't many people deadlifting that much weight. Was that a struggle for him, or is he just naturally just he that was strong? an explosive lister? Yeah. His, he moved it fast, or he didn't move it. Yeah. Um, did anything go into his training specifically for that, leading up to it, or was it just the same as everyone was doing? He was following the program, uh, as far as we knew, and just just again a kind of a Matt Dimmel type guy, just a lot of natural brute strength. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I'm I'm kind of amazed I did what I did. If it, to me, a lot of it's bone structure. I mean, if you look at my my bone structure, I wrestled 120 in high school. Oh wow! At this height, yeah. Well, I'm actually an inch shorter now because I've shrunk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did not have a big bone structure, and I, yeah. you know, I probably shouldn't have been able to do what I did. If you look at Louis's wrists compared to mine, huge difference. Yeah. And Tom was a big, thick guy like that and it's just that leads to building a lot of strength i think during your time at osu were you able to uh bring people back and forth that were potentially could fit in or how did new people get into your guys's group back then oh in the garage yeah mean? yeah and matt's the only guy that i'm claim responsibility <laughs> for i didn't go looking for people yeah. i mean it, you could only fit so many people in that garage and uh, we had a good rotation, I think. Our group size for the, the facility we had, I think, was perfect. Five, six guys um, rotate through the lifts, and uh, it worked well. Because, again, there was one bench, one squat stand, one place. Well, you could deadlift off to the side. Yeah. Especially our, our assistance work. We did a lot of deadlifting off boxes or off boards for um, assistance work. The assistance stuff could be done around in different places but um and no once i got to the gym i didn't i didn't go anywhere else i didn't see any other lifters anywhere uh to bring in so i think matt was enough oh yeah <laughs> were were you there around the time when louis broke his back no i no. was not um yeah the two times i read about the in the book that he yeah. sent me um but no, I'm I missed that. I'm kind of glad I didn't didn't see all that. No, yeah. he had rehabbed himself, uh, so it would have been. I think one of those incidents would have been. One was before I saw him in Indiana. I think the other one was after uh, that, but yeah. before I got to Columbus. Um, outside of the belt squat, do you have any other uh, experiments that you were like, you couldn't believe that you were a part of or trying out? are watching i'm trying to think we did um for a while we were doing uh front squat zercher squats uh, again we rotated lots of these things in on on assistance day yep. that i think helped a lot and and louie was really smart about this because being we're all we're all competitive right yep. and you don't want to burn out doing just the same thing over and over and again but you know if my best zercher squad is 275 i want 230 yep. i want 28 i want more and more and more in each but if you're doing five or six different things you're not gonna you're not gonna burn out and uh, get overtrained yeah. in, the, in the way that we used to before we knew that 
So where was the development of powerlifting gear during your time there? Okay. Um, so Louis started, he had about a four year head start on me. I read the book and, and so, and, and it makes sense. He's four yep. years older than I um, was. And uh, I didn't start in high school. So with gear, it was um, ace wraps. Well, I, when I started at Purdue, yeah, the power suit had not been invented. It was, uh, and the thick belts did, had not been invented. So it was like a Bob Hoffman belt, gym shorts, a t-shirt, and ace bandages. By the time I had gotten to Columbus, um, so the single ply suits, Inzer, I guess, or Marathon, I guess, was the first company to make okay. those. You know, double knit polyester. Um, the thicker wraps, the wraps got thicker. Um, then the bench shirts came out a little bit after that. Same kind of material as, as the squat suit. Yeah. And then we again had the the thick power belts. I think they're the same today. I'm not sure, but. Did um, you get a lot out of them or was it more for protecting you guys? I think a lot guys? of it was mental, which is great. If yeah. it works, it works. Yeah. Physically, um, I wouldn't guess more than about 20 pounds on a given lift, but 20 pounds is 20, 20 pounds. pounds. <laughs> <laughs> and again, everybody, you know, if, if you're not using it and your, your competitor is, you're starting off 20 pounds in the hole. When you're going through this experimentation with the gear and training, was there, or who was outside of Westside, um, your guys's place to go research information? Where was it coming from? Or was it all coming from Lou's head? All from Louie. I mean, he was, I mean, I, again, this, this was a hobby for me. Yeah. I was a full-time professor at Ohio State and a wife and kids. So I was, I guess, siloed or compartmentalized. I did this and I did this, I did this, I did yep. this. Everything came to me through Louie or possibly somebody you'd see at a meet and yeah. maybe talk to during uh, warm-ups or something like that. But 99% Louie. Was there anyone from the other groups that uh, contributed a lot to the furtherment of the system in terms of uh, who Louie would exchange information from that you can think of or that you were around? Well, I know he, he was close with Larry Pacifico. Um, you know, Pacifico trained bridges, I think, back then. Yep. Um, Louie talked to everybody. So, I mean, he's sort of the fount of information yep. and the receptacle of all information from all these different teams. Uh, did you meet George Crawford? Was he around? I never did. did. I knew the name quite yeah. well, but I just never, never did meet him. And you said, like, you competed against Roger Estep. And mm -hmm. was there um, any information back and forth there? Yeah, I remember Louie asking him, he was, basically he was around, he wasn't around for a while, and he was then came back much stronger, and I, Louie was talking with him about that, and uh, he actually went to the West Coast to learn, like, not just read the articles, but go out there and and train at the original West Side. With Pat Casey and... Yeah, and so, yeah, Roger was a good guy, and he... he Talked to Louis a lot. Um, I talked to him occasionally, yeah. but not not in depth. Um, so I want to talk about 1984. 
Okay. Um, when you were number one in the top ten, is that I think that's the correct year. Yeah. What um what happened in your training? Was everything leading up to this that culminated in you been number one, or does something change? What it was um, a steady progression, and you know, coming to this. Uh, Coming up here, I did a little research and I looked back through some of the old magazines. Um, I didn't really focus a lot on what I did, but yeah. I, I went back just to refresh my memory. And it was, I'd say, a fairly steady progression. Um, again, I had my best total before getting to 590 Larkham was uh, 1530 at 181. And that was at the 76 uh, National Collegiates, which I won. Uh, the squat was a broke the squat record that time was 555 by Ralph Sesso. The total was a new total record 1530 beat 1525 by Ralph Sesso. Okay. And Ralph was in the audience and he came down and shook my hand after that and I was just kind of blown away by that. Yeah. I said, "Wow, I'm sorry about your records." <laughs> he said, "No, records are meant to be broken. Great job." And yeah. I really appreciated that from him. But so that's where I came in the door. Yeah. And as you said, by 1984, I did the 1934, so that's wow. 400 pounds on the total. Um, but if you look at my totals leading up to that, I'd won the Junior Nationals in really 83 was a good year. I'd won the Junior Nationals, my second attempt. Uh, first attempt, I went to Little Rock, and I think I came in second or third. Yeah. Uh, Little Rock, by the way, interestingly, is the first time we ever saw Bill Kazmaier, and um, that guy, well, everybody knows who that guy was, yeah. but Louis, he had the best sense of humor of anybody in the gym for by eons. Yeah. But he looked at me and he said, they ought to quit making Godzilla movies and start making Kazmaier movies. <laughs> I remember that like yesterday. I mean, Kazmaier was a beast. I mean, I remember... You know, you get the smelling salts before you do yeah. your lift, and most of us, it's in a little jar or something, or take a little whiff. He's up there, and he busts two of those things in half and jams one in each nostril <laughs> before he squatted. I said, that would just knock me out. Yeah. I couldn't do it. Was uh, was he working with, was he with Terry Todd back then? Yeah, I believe he was. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, but so I won the, the juniors, which you can only win once. You can't go back. That's the rule. Yeah. And then, oddly enough, in 83, Three, they had the YMCA Nationals twice in that calendar year, in January and December. And so the actual 84 YMCA's was actually December 17th of 83. And I went back to look that one up because that's where I hit my, my 1934, which turned out to be the number one total. Um, interestingly, uh, Dennis Wright, if you look at that list, he's number two. 1934, same exact weight, but yeah. I did it first, so I'm number uh, one. one. <laughs> and now it's sad story is at the senior nationals that year, that's where he did his 1934, and I had a horrible meet. So I beat him at the Ys, and then I got beat at seniors, and we switched places with that same total. Okay. So um, was there any exercise or any methodology of training that you can attribute to that success that was rotated in? I'd say the number one thing in my mind, at least, was the box squats, doing the three levels. Sometimes we do four levels, even a sub box. So 
above parallel, parallel, below parallel, and then we threw in the sub. So at the end, it ended up being like four levels. How low was the sub? I think it was 11, the actual milk crate. We yeah. had this metal milk crate, and we based it all off of that. And then uh, plywood stacked up X amount. So we were shooting for an inch above parallel, parallel, an inch below parallel, and then the sub box would be like two inches below parallel. And would you do this all in one session or is it spread out over one time? Session. One session. Was, um, can you remember what the strength deviation was from the high box down to the, the sub? Yeah, probably not as much as you would think. I think so. My best squad all time in a meet was 771. I had done, um, I, I attempted 804 and I, I squatted it, but I got two reds and a white. So I was in that, that range. My best high box squat that I can remember was like an 860. Yeah. And my limitation was walking out with it. I mean, it was no mono lifts. That's another thing. We, yeah. we walked the weight out, we got set and we had to walk it back in. Um, again, the Wright brothers, <laughs> Stone Age, Fred yeah. Flintstone lifting. <laughs> so, yeah, just controlling the weight walking out was yeah. the hardest part of that. The actual 860 down and up wasn't that bad. And then I'd say at that time at the low box, I was probably around seven and a quarter, okay. something like that. Um, I want to circle uh, back into wrestling. Mm -hmm. uh, and wrestling's had a huge part of West and a huge part of Lou. Yeah. I didn't realize how <laughs> much of a wrestling fanatic he was. Oh, yeah. Uh, because he had always had the quotes off. He'd have um, people's sayings and story mm -hmm. songs. But um, he did. Uh, Jimmy he even Mitch, had the mask he'd wear on Sundays yeah, sometimes. <laughs> which uh, is just crazy to me to know the Lou that I knew. Obviously, going to be different than the Lou that you guys knew. Sure. Um, but can you touch upon the, the wrestling aspect? Because it's, it's a constant theme throughout. Yeah, I mean, we, we would, he would just get so animated watching on Sundays. <laughs> if we weren't talking about our lifts and typically after we did the analysis, the post-op and all that. Yeah. All right, it's time for, for wrestling. He would get so animated and, and so involved in it. And then uh, I know I saw Jim's podcast and he mentioned the time we all went down to the Columbus, whatever it was, the big arena. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the fact that Matt went off on Kevin Aikens that night in the parking lot after the after the event, and I said, Jim, I have something I can add to this because I thought he would say this, but he doesn't remember, and I do. Um, I promise you I didn't make this up, but there was a wrestler called King Kong Bundy, and this guy was human. He was like 425 pounds. His legs were so thick, and he had the $10,000 body slam challenge. Like anybody from the audience who could body slam him would get $10,000. And they're only letting a few people try. Yeah. And Matt Dimmel's with us. He's, oh, I can do that. He's deadlifting <laughs> 800 pounds. Yeah. He goes down there. He just like wrestling a greased pig. He just couldn't get a grip. He couldn't, he couldn't do it. Well, just pissed him off, obviously. <laughs> Matt doesn't like yeah. not getting what he wants, not doing what he wants to do. And, and that's what set him in the in parking lot. Kevin made some crack about it, and Matt just went ballistic. <laughs> like, and Kevin was a big teddy bear. I mean, yeah. he was at least as big as Matt. He was a shot putter, correct? 
Well, Ohio State shot putter, I believe he was like fourth on the Olympic team. Um, he just came, he, again, he wasn't required or expected to yeah. come to every workout, but he was welcome to, to come. Yeah. The first guy I ever saw break a power bar. Uh, um, he's so tall, and we had the pin set probably too low, and he, he got shaky, and he dropped it. It snapped right at the collar. <laughs> Lucky a spotter didn't get, you know, seriously hurt with that. Yeah. Um, that was pretty scary. His first power bar, I've been around a long time. I've never seen a power bar break. And it was, uh, uh, from what I remember from Jim's story, it was uh, a very important power bar that everyone loved. It was loved. Louis' favorite. Uh, that thing had been around forever. Yeah. But Louis took it in stride. I mean, he didn't cuss him out. He didn't and, um, just, we'll find another bar. Did um, any of the pro wrestlers ever come in and train? or did, it, did I Louis... missed them, but I heard that, I think it was Animal and Hawk, I guess, at the time. Yeah. Um, I heard about... Uh, several people. Again, I was missing for a year, and then I, I came up here for a reunion in 96. Um, Jim and the guys, I yeah. got invited up, and I heard a lot of stories about the wrestlers having been in, in here. And uh, The one I heard that, I know Vader used to call and leave him a message as really? Vader. Yeah, was a, a big thing, but it's, uh, it's great to hear all the connections from like wrestling oh, yeah. from there from day one the whole way it, through. It was, and I wish Louie were here to tell the story today that on a personal note, in my old age, I mean, I'd do some walking, I'd do some lightweights. I've got one of Jimmy's band bars. I had my left shoulder replaced mm -hmm. last year, and I'm two weeks from now I'm having this one replaced. Oh. But his bar has been really helpful in getting that back. But yeah. the other thing I do uh, religiously is DDP yoga. Uh, Diamond, Diamond Dallas, Dallas Page, Page. Yeah. He, he does yeah. a yoga program. It's the hardest thing I do. <laughs> and he says, make it your own. You can make it as hard or as easy as you want. So, oh. yeah, wrestling is still affecting me. <laughs> <laughs> what um, What's one of the most, um, I guess, what are you most proud of being a part of Westside? I'm just so honored and proud of being a part of the whole whole thing who you know again i lost track of things once i left and i would want to speak a little bit about that in a, in a minute about mm -hmm. uh, why lou and i didn't really keep up and i, I want to really get that on the record yeah. um but to see what's happened since we founded it i mean a part of that foundation is just pretty awesome it's uh hard to ever... believe how far it went and how yeah. big it got and it's just so happy for Lou to have had that success because he lived, eat, breathe, sleep, 100% all the time. And to circle back in, because you're a huge part, I don't think there was a month that went by when you weren't brought up in conversation when we would talk about training. Wow. Because it was, um, I said, there's, there's certain groups is a huge part to him. And uh, you knew you made it into Louis's internal circle in his head <laughs> to where when he would go talk about and tell stories mm -hmm. um but yeah i always wondered why he'd always talk about you but i i don't think until he started doing the book there was never um i don't think you guys were in constant communication no we uh to be honest weren't there are a couple couple of reasons for that um the minor reason i guess would be i, I mean i just saw and, and i've heard about this in other podcasts how much time Louis spent on the phone 
I mean, he would talk to anybody about, he'd, he'd say, I just talked to this guy for an hour. Who was it? I don't know. He just wanted to ask me about this and that. Yeah. And I, that just kills. I'm not a phone person. Not I'm 180 degrees out from that. Yeah. When texting changed from pushing a button three times to get the letter C, yeah. now we're talking. Yeah. It's just like, like with Jim, it's, it's like highly text-based communication. Um, so I didn't want to add to his load on the phone, and yeah. I don't like the phone. Uh, but the main reason is we're both, again, we're more similar than different. Yeah. Neither one of us spends a nanosecond looking in the rearview mirror. Um, it's just that's the way it is. Yeah. Now I'm at LSU. I've got a new job, a new professor job. I'm focused on this. I'm looking forward. And um, he was the same way. Yep. He's Now he's, Sanger's gone, but we're bringing new people in. We're going to make it bigger, better, stronger. Well, and we, I think we both understood that. What I found amazing is the way Louis would piece information together. Yes. He would talk like about you as if it was yesterday. So you'd have to figure out that this may have been in the 70s and 80s, <laughs> but now it's 2014 and we're trying to figure out how he's connecting your story with this person's story with that. Oh. But it was um, but it was always the same few. It was the same rotation because in his mind, everyone had a huge part sure. in developing the system. And yours kept coming back to the importance of analyzing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't criticizing. It was reflecting and analyzing on training. And that never left. And it became more and more important. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the strength, what I'm finding is the strength training aspect evolved to what it was, but the refinement of the importance of a training group started with you guys. And mm -hmm. that never left. And I think that's what set Westside apart the most was the environment and the culture sure. it set forth. And yeah, you're a no, huge It, it was part scientific in, in a way. I mean, we just try to dissect things and talk about what might work better or a lot of experimentation. Um, and some things work better for some lifters than others, but other things were just universally box squat, yeah. guaranteed slam dunk, 10% uh, on your squat. Yeah. Well, and that's when you guys are doing them correctly. Yeah. There's a, a big difference now because a lot of people get it wrong. They touch and go. But um, Oh, no. Lou, yeah. Lou taught us that, and we, we got it drilled into us. It's, it's like you sit, and it's, yeah. My first trepidation with that a little bit was compressing your discs. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, if you got the right form and the right technique, it's uh, nothing wrong with it. It's a fine, fine lift. Well, it's, it's a staple now in everything we do. Mm -hmm. um, Gary, before we wrap up, is there anything that you want to talk about or anything that I haven't touched on? I know it's so much happened in that period of time, but is there anything that you want to uh, get out or tell or pass on? Yeah, maybe a couple of little things will pop into my head here. I know uh, another thing that Lou and I had in common, we were both big Three Stooges fans. Oh, yeah. And that that came, that was just, he would like, maybe Jimmy Seitzer would come up and say, Lou, there's something wrong. My peck is hurting. Like, and Lou will go, does it, does it hurt when you do this? And Jim will go, yeah. He goes, don't do that. <laughs> like, he would... He would always be cracking Three Stooges and uh, all his one-liners. Um, I've got more pains than a glass factory. You heard that one? <laughs> yeah. My One of my favorite ones was uh, if powerlifters figured out that Brillo pads made you stronger, 
there wouldn't be a clean potter pan in town. <laughs> <laughs> he just had a million of them. Yeah. Um, another funny story, we were driving to uh, West Virginia and the boonies for some kind of meet with the Wild Bunch down in West Virginia. And I think it was my wife and I, Louie and Doris, and we're driving down there and we get lost. So Louie gets out, there's little side streets and there's these three ladies or girls sitting on their front porch, small yard close to the street. He gets out, walk up and ask directions and you know, with his bald head, the Fu Manchu and the all three girls got up and ran in the house, slammed the door. <laughs> Louie turns around and goes, I'm just trying to get directions. Finally, one of, one of the braver ones peeked her head out and he says, we're looking for the high school. <laughs> that was a funny story. Yeah. But I don't know. See if I think of anything else quickly here. Oh, I mean, there's there's no rush with it. Yeah. Um Do you think Louis was misunderstood by a lot of people? Tremendously. I mean, I'm gathering that from preparation to come here. I looked at some of the podcasts, and um, I don't know. But Louis, I know he changed after I left. He did. I don't think he had a single tattoo. Oh, he, he got them in his mid 50s when I left yeah. here. Um, so that that's a change. Um, obviously, he went from not wanting to have a team to obviously having the baddest ass team yeah. on the planet. That's a huge change. Yeah. Um, um, I'm so proud of his creativity and his patents and his equipment. I mean, he was just brilliant. Yeah. Um, contributed just so much. It never ended right up into the end. We still have two that are, he developed that are still going through the whole wow. industry, but he never, not once stopped getting patents or trademarks or, and it was always based around fixing an athlete's problem. It was never for money. Right. Everything he did was always based around making someone better. Sure. If it made money, great. That was just a happy byproduct. Sure. But it was never, it was always for advancing someone's ability in a given sport. Right. That, that was true to Louie. Um, I mean, the reverse hyper alone has just helped. I'm, I get on mine twice a week. I think about him all these years I've been gone. I thought about him every time I jumped on that reverse hyper. Yeah. And um, it's keeping me walking at 71. So great piece of equipment. Yeah. Matt Dimon and I worked security at the, whatever the big concert center was. Yeah. Downtown. I mean, the big place. We, we saw bands like Scorpions, Iron Maiden. But the bar, one of the bars that Matt and I hung out at, the, the head of security there saw us and said, hey, do you guys want to work security at concerts? And uh, pay us $25 a concert, a T-shirt, <laughs> says security. <laughs> and Matt and I got uh, signed to the front center stage to hear Iron Maiden. That oh, wow. was cool as yeah. shit. Um, And then Scorpions, two weeks later, and this is fresh because of what happened, we were center stage and there was a center aisle that came down. It wasn't very wide, but we were right there in the center and the little skinny German singer from Scorpions at the last song of the night, he yells out to the crowd, come on down. Me and Matt look at each other and like, oh. So we both took a bench press stance up against the stage <laughs> between the two of us. He's twice as big as me, but... Yeah. Between the two of us, we had the whole thing blocked. And they're just piling up behind us. All these kids are getting smashed into us, you know, like a soccer thing or something <laughs> like that. 
and uh, took the other bouncers to run around back and pull them all off of us. But there's a little kid behind me and he starts going, I can't, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Matt reached over with one hand and picked the kid up by the scruff of the neck and tossed him off to the side <laughs> and put his hand back on the stage. And uh, probably yeah. saved the kid's life. Jeez. Um, that, that was our side gig, uh, assistant yeah. professor at Ohio State working security at concerts. <laughs> <laughs> did you have that for, did that job for long? We did it for probably about five, six months. Yeah. But it was a fun little gig. Yeah. Well, I, re I remember another event in the gym that might be worth regaling. <laughs> uh, we, among all the things we did, um, we would put the, um, the power bar in the lowest part of the power rack and then put our feet up on a chair or a stool. So we're, we're basically it's an incline position, yep. but reverse incline. Yeah. And then put plates on, you know, your spotter puts plates on your back and you're, you're just doing push-ups. And um, we got up to, I don't know, it got hard to balance more than 300 pounds. You're doing yeah. push-ups, the plates are, and the spotters are trying to hold them. But one time, though, Doug Heath is loading 100 on, on Louie and he just dropped it flat on his head. <laughs> and... and You'd think, oh, God, is he killed Louie? Yeah. <laughs> and then Louie says, damn it, Heath, get that and pick it up and put it on where it belongs. <laughs> so the, the heaviest weight ever done at that attempt was Kevin Aiken's weight, because what we decided is, after all the cumbersome putting these plates and trying to keep them from sliding off, said, well, why don't we just have a guy... Doug, Doug Heath was the lightest weight, yeah. so you're down there, and Heath just rides you like a horse... Doug Heathwaite. And then we finally got up to Kevin Aiken's weight. It was like 340, something like that. Yeah. I did eight reps with Kevin Aiken. So. Oh, uh, Just among the things that we tried. Yeah, yeah the, the rack deadlifts, we, as a Purdue group, we didn't know about those or didn't do them. Um, and I, I went just like many people did back then. Um, I think sumo came about. Um, in the early 70s. Yeah. It was all conventional before that. Um, so when sumo came out, we all tried it. First thing I did is pull a groin muscle with 440 pounds. I wasn't so sure that was the way to go, but yeah. I, I started working some adductor abduct, some work on the, on the groin and went back to, because I'm built for that. Yeah. I'm, I'm short guy and very short legs. So I could do about a hundred pounds more sumo than I could conventional, um, but but still for the assistance stuff we would train conventional, and um, so yeah, Louie an analyzed my my deadlift was by far my weakest lift all mm -hmm. the way through my career I think, but um, squat was probably the best and bench was was pretty solid. So um, Louie had me do uh, above the knee. With, with the pins and I could do, I don't know, 850 pounds. Yeah. A lot of weight. Surprised myself. I didn't you know. Um, with straps, no straps? Straps, straps. For that. Yeah, for sure. And um, so we'd work, yeah, different pin levels. Um, but I think what helped me even more was um, sort of the reverse of that, standing on, on Lou had a, like a suitcase type box. It was probably... I don't know, four to five inches. So you'd uh, 
conventional. Again, stand on that and do, you, know, you could do up to maybe 500 pounds, something yeah. like that. But I think that helped my deadlift. So it wasn't as bad as it. My, my best deadlift ended up being, and I really hate this, we were lifting metric. It was six ninety nine and three quarters. Oh my lord! I'm like, oh yeah. come on! In math, we round up. Right? <laughs> and on some of the websites, they even have it listed as six ninety nine point nine. I said, give me a break. <laughs> um, but I had seven eleven that same meet up just above the knee and couldn't lock yeah. it out. So I improved a lot on that from where I started, based on Louis' help with yeah. the, both the above the knee and the pins and the low work, st standing up on a box to make it a more lighter weight, try to explosively pull from that level. Did you do any isometrics back then? Uh, not much. Yeah. Not much that I recall. Um, we did grip work. We'd, you know, get, put whatever you want on the bar, 450, whatever, overhand, and just hold it as long as you could. Yeah. Work on your grip that way. Um, I was at, by the way, I was at Meltdown in Mississippi uh, was right 10 feet away when Lou pulled his bicep. And if you look at the actual lift by lift by lift results of that meet, it was a train wreck. Yeah. Um, Brother Bennett had no air conditioning. Um, everybody just had a real tough day that day. No, no tougher than Louie. But um, so, yeah, we worked a lot on the grip. But in that kind of conditions, there's no grip that's going yeah. to hold that. So. I actually went back to Bay St. Louis after I moved to LSU. I lifted for a few more years. Yeah. Um, never went really beyond where, when I left here, that was the plateau. There was just no, um, you know, I did train with some guys down there and I did fairly well, but yeah. um, went 220 for a meet. So I can say I've done elite in three weight classes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 220 for some reason, I'll bet if I were up here with Louie, he would have made that work. I just felt bloated and I didn't feel much stronger and yeah. I didn't improve much. So I went back to, to 98, but I went to Bay St. Louis and um, saw Hatfield there lift. That was pretty impressive yeah. to see him. And uh, this time they had air conditioning, so it was much more pleasant. <laughs> it was, Ed Cohn was 83. Was that a big year for? Oh him? yeah, he yeah. was, well, he had a lot of big years. years but yeah. I remember being at, um, it was either a Y Nationals or a Junior Nationals, and I was having trouble making weight. And the, the hotel had a scale set up down in the basement somewhere or down off of where the lifting was going to occur. And I remember to this day up at 3 o'clock in the morning going down to weigh myself, and I see Eddie, little Eddie Cohn. I call him little Eddie Cohn because <laughs> he was a lot younger than me, but he's down there doing the same thing. I said, man, you're going to make it? He goes, I got a quarter pound to go. <laughs> I said, it's three in the morning. You'll make it. Just, But that's the first time I ever encountered him. Yeah. What a monstrously oh, strong guy. Yeah. But again, look at that bone structure. Yeah. I mean, he's built for it. He's just a, uh, one of those freaks of nature who's made to lift, or lift a lot of weights. Oh, yeah. And he was a nice guy, too. Yeah. I even saw him years later, and he wasn't braggadocious. He was just a nice... Uh, humble guy. Yeah. Um, but an add-on to the Bay St. Louis story, uh, me and one other guy from, from LSU went over to Lyft, and it was an ADFPA meet, drug-free. 
And this is the way team sports work or the, the way some sort of sports work. Um, it's 120 people in the meet. They're going to randomly pick two people to be polygraphed. <laughs> and it's a Mississippi meet. Adrian Serio, Gary Sanger get picked <laughs> randomly. The two guys from Louisiana. So we go up to this room and get wired up to polygraph. And we passed. But those guys were. On their level. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, we don't need that in the sport. No, it's it's that uh, mentality is just not good for such for such a small sport. There's so much um, animosity between different groups. Mm-hmm. Where and Louis talked about that, where he thought like well, he knew it'd be a lot better if everyone banded together and it would grow a lot more. But oh yeah, so was it the the IPF? No. IPF, yeah. Yeah, there were so yeah, many life. of them, I lost track. Yeah. <laughs> but Pretty. in academia, we have this thing that the fight is so fierce when the stakes are so low. Yeah, that's, <laughs> a, that's a valid point. Um, is there any concluding remarks you want to, we can put on the end for you? Uh, yeah, I guess a couple of things. Um, just uh, West Side, live long and prosper in the spirit of, of Louis. And there's, I think it was the Righteous Brothers. Uh, one of their songs, it's like, Heaven's Got a Hell of a Band. Well, Heaven's Got a Hell of a Powerlifting Team, and it got a hell of a lot stronger when Lou passed. Thank you very much, Gary. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that.